Welcome to the Trial Talks Podcast, a thought-provoking series surrounding clinical trial research. We'll be exploring current and future trends of the ever-changing clinical trial landscape as we discuss a variety of topics including virtual trials, patient centricity, novel and unique research, pandemic impact, and more. Join us and our expert guests on a journey through the evolution of clinical trials. Hi, this is Nicole Latimer, the CEO of Medrio. Welcome to Trial Talks Season 2. This season is all about the heart of your trial and your patients. We'll be speaking with patient advocates, diversity experts, and we'll be hearing directly from some patients themselves in an effort to gain insight into how to improve the patient experience in clinical studies. Today, I am joined by Kimberly Richardson, a patient advocate and cancer survivor. Welcome, Kimberly. We are so happy to have you join us today. Thank you so much, Nicole. I'm glad to be here today. Uh, as a patient advocate, we, we get these opportunities to share our story. So I'm very grateful for this opportunity. I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. How did you become so passionate about patient advocacy? Well, I can tell you honestly, um, I was running a not-for-profit and uh, approaching 50 and decided that I wanted to run the Chicago Marathon. And in doing so, I found myself extremely fatigued, ended up uh, talking with my primary, doing a litmus of tests. And once we discovered that uh, I had an ovarian cyst, I went in for surgery and on the table was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, stage three. No symptoms, mm. no risk factors, no hereditary anything in my family. And aside from that, more importantly was my relationship with my oncologist at the time. It was extremely tumultuous, uh, being the type of type A kind of person that I am and in a leadership position. I wanted answers. I wanted to understand how did I, uh, how did I get diagnosed with ovarian cancer? And then on top of all of that, it was a rare form, which is granuloso cell tumor. And so I had, as I said, a tumultuous relationship with my, my oncologist, couldn't get answers from her. In 2013, not too much was on the internet about granuloso cell tumor. So when you would Google, which everybody does who's been diagnosed, um, all I found was information that said I was gonna be dead in five years. Not understanding that they were, those statistics were speaking to epithelial ovarian cancer. And so I share that part of my story because that's what's really led me to advocacy. Why don't we have better patient-physician communication around this diagnosis? Why at the time wasn't there adequate information to help cancer patients understand uh, outside of that five or 10 minute visit that you get with your oncologist prior to infusions? You just can't get any answers. Patient advocates have uh, across all cancer types have begun to learn, we've got to do this for each other. We've got to provide that information, uh, those step-by-steps of once you've been diagnosed, what's next? Um, what do you need to know 
about each part of this diagnosis. What's going to happen in treatment? What's the uh, breakthrough research that's happening right now? And most importantly, are there any clinical trials that you could participate in? And across the board, you're seeing more and more patient advocates moving from what we call awareness advocacy, where we share our stories, to more policy advocacy and research advocacy. And my niche is research advocacy. Give me a little sense of really what does research advocacy mean? And for the layperson, what kinds of activities are you pursuing to advocate for research? Oftentimes, patient advocates are asked to uh, review research protocols, uh, research grants, and that's some of the type of work that an advocate would get involved in initially. So we would be involved with reading your abstract, giving you the patient perspective on the abstract. We would probably be involved with, say, DOD, Department of Defense, Uh, That's where large amounts of cancer research money uh, has landed. Um, And we get, as patient advocates, we're asked uh, either at NCI or the National Cancer Institute or the National Institutes of Health, they trickle down to different sites and they may ask a patient advocate to review how the experiment is actually going to work. And so we get involved in learning a little bit more about the abstracts. And I've taken it a little bit further than that, because what I found was as patient advocates, we are going to scientific and medical conferences. What I'm finding is, is that we don't understand what's going on in the sessions. And we don't understand what we're reading when we go to poster sessions on particular uh, research. And so what I've been able to do over the last two years uh, at the University of Illinois Cancer Center is I've been working with MD-PhD students and they help me to take the research and break it down into easy to understand language. So when a patient advocate actually goes to a conference, they understand a scientific poster after reading my, and participating with my modules. They understand What is the research all about in the first place? We break it down as simple as what's the dependent variable? What's the independent variable? How statistically significant that research actually is? What type of study it is? We also help people understand how to move around publication journals, PubMed, step-by-step, easy to understand language around research advocacy. So that's what, uh, what I consider research advocacy to be. We are helping patients and caregivers and other patient advocates who have not really had any experience with working on the research side of cancer research or in, with clinical trials. That is such an incredible service to be providing to the industry. I love the fact that you're not only looking at and examining protocols for understanding how's it going to impact the patient, but you're also thinking about the issues of health literacy. How do you break down really complex information and make it understandable to your average patient? Tell me a little bit about your first experiences with 
participating and looking at those protocols. Were there any major lessons you had, things that you looked at and said, wow, I can't, I can't even imagine as a patient going through this and, and changes that you suggested to those protocols? Oh, absolutely. I think this is where I really started to get the idea for doing these modules was when I was a reviewer for DOD's ovarian cancer program. And I'm up in Reston, Virginia with a, a room full of scientists. And they kept saying, well, oh no, you, you guys will just have to read the abstracts. You won't have to read the full study. And I'm like, no, I think I want to read the full study. <laughs> and so when it came down to uh, how they were reviewed and how they were scored, I realized for me, my scores were very similar to the scientists and other patient advocates' scores were, they weren't as in-depth as the best that I can say. And I think it's because, once again, we're only asked to uh, read the abstracts. And the, the language, the, it's the language of scientific jargon. So it's not, it's not like a subject and verb agreement sentence, right? It's, it's a lot of uh, jargon. And it takes some time for you to really sit down and read it and reread it till you get to some level of comprehension. And imagine how somebody thinks who is a patient or even a caregiver reading something like this and just saying, well, let's just get down to the bottom. What does this mean? Is this going to help my cancer type? Is this going to be the next uh, breakthrough drug? Is this a bit of the same stuff from 10 years ago? We rarely, uh, as patient advocates, really understand sort of the politics around cancer research and why are we still looking at the same types of research from the same institutions? We don't get that flavor from it because we're just being asked to read these abstracts. And so I think as if we're able to understand the research, Ultimately, what we're able to do better is when we go to Capitol Hill and say, we would like additional funding for, for example, ovarian cancer research. I can say that with more meaning because I actually understand what that research is. I'm not just going in there sharing my story of how I went through treatment and the impact it's had on my life. And wouldn't it be great if you could give us some more money for cancer research? But I can literally say, this is why we need the money. We need the money because we're eight years away from a vaccine. We don't have a diagnostic test or a screening device for ovarian cancer. We're looking, we think we're on the edge when it relates to PARC inhibitors. These are the types of, if you understand a little bit more about the research, it gives us a little bit more currency when we're on the Hill talking to lawmakers about why it's important. The story matters, but more intelligence about the research matters as well. What I'm hearing you say is that it's about the specificity. It's not a general ask for money around the research. It's being able to say, and we're going to use the money for 
a vaccine for a diagnostic test. It's that specific outcome that by understanding the research, you're able to articulate those specific outcomes that then makes you that much more effective at arguing for additional funding. Is that right? Absolutely. Listen, Nicole, we've been doing advocacy days for years, right? They expect us to come with our colored t-shirts on and you know, our feather boas or whatever. <laughs> and they, ex- <laughs> they have an expectation that we're coming with the past the tissue story. And in many cases, it's really important to personalize while we're there. That works. Sharing stories, storytelling matters. What I am suggesting for for my cancer, for example, with ovarian cancer, we don't have a diagnostic screening. So what that means is so many women are being diagnosed at late stages. Do we honestly have any more time to just tell more stories about women that are dying? Do we have Or should we be asking these, when we do these legislative asks for money for NCI and increased money for DOD, that matters. That's the legislative ask, right? But what these women are really asking is can you redistribute some money toward a diagnostic test so we can sort of catch this disease before it kills women? And I am almost sure that other disease categories feel the same. And so I think that there needs to be a step up, a step up in advocacy, a step up in literacy. Our organizing strategies have to change in order for us to get people to hear what we're saying. I know when I say that to you, right? It makes you go, wow, what do you mean there's no diagnostic test for ovarian cancer? Pap smears don't pick that up. So what does the woman who's 35 years and plus, who's finished childbearing years, what do we do? There's a mammogram for breast cancer screening, and you can get that until you're well into your 80s and 90s if you prefer. But what are we saying to women beyond the ages of 30 to 40? Good luck. Good luck with your reproductive organs. Uh, (laughs) Good luck. I mean, most women don't even know the status of those uh, those organs, what they look like, how they're doing, right? And with no diagnostic tests, boom, you're just, you're late staged. And depending on the type of ovarian cancer that it could be, it it could be lethal, it could be uh, detrimental. It's really imperative that we, we stay focused on the fact that the diagnostic could, in fact, detect at an earlier stage. That's the rarity, that's the percentage of women that we don't don't have the, 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 the truest data on. How well and how effective can we continue to keep telling stories about our late stage without really telling people 
These are the researchers that are day in and day out trying to find a way. And they're underfunded. And we need to relook at how we distribute funding for cancer research. It shouldn't just be about the highest incidence of cancer. It should also be about those cancers where we haven't found a diagnostic as well. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about how awareness and health literacy has an impact on actually then running effective clinical trials. Imagine there is better funding and we are looking for a diagnostic. Do you think that awareness and literacy still have to be improved in order to bring in the right patients to those trials? Oh, absolutely. Because I think what we're, what we're experiencing right now is this whole conversation around participation, but we don't really talk as much as we should about engagement. If I know a lot more about clinical trials, what they actually mean, what they actually can do, I think more people would see the benefit in participating. Because I think sometimes if we talk so much about, oh, they're gonna, if we get them in the trial and then we realize they're not eligible, then what have we really done? We've, we've encouraged somebody to type up a form, submit a form and, and sit and wait and then go, oh, you know what, you're not eligible. So we've got like these three different sections that need to be discussed and have people clearly understand. The engagement section, the submission to, uh, to participate in a trial and what that will mean. And then the ongoing participation as you are selected to be in a trial. What is that going to be like for you? What is your life really going to turn into? So yeah, I, I think that when we talk about awareness, it's, it's gonna be critical that we develop easy to understand outreach and campaign around clinical trials. I have found here in Chicago, I did an, uh, an event last February with over 200 uh, neighborhood residents. I invited the FDA's Oncology Center of Excellence. We had um, oncologists here from the Chicago area and we had patients who had participated in clinical trials. And it was an effort to educate the community around clinical trials. Guess what, we got the education. We polled them the day of the event and we asked simple questions like, do you understand what precision medicine is? And every one of them came back. Yes, we, of course we understand what precision medicine is. This is exactly what it is. Would you participate in a clinical trial? Yeah, would you, would you would your family and friends do you think they would participate in a clinical trial? Yes. Now, sure, there were a few folks in the audience who wanted to, you know, have a conversation around um, 
the Tuskegee experiment and Henrietta Lacks. But then there were other people in the audience who would say, yeah, but you know, when Henrietta Lacks' family was here uh, last year in Chicago, they were encouraging people to get involved in clinical trials. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like education goes, it's a very bi-directional uh, process when you think you're going to be telling uh, residents about the importance of participating in clinical trials. And they kind of already know. They just want to know, where are they? How can I get involved? And so that's when I began to learn that it's not so much about, it's a mistrust issue. It's more of, I haven't been asked. And so how do we find ways, outreach strategies, where is it at the, is it at the hospital level? Does the doctor have to wear a button that says, ask me about a clinical trial? Um, do we have to be doing this at the neighborhood level through our, our aldermen or city council people? Uh, figuring out how to do this at the safety net hospital level or our community-based clinics. This literacy has to happen at that level. I'd even be honest and say, I would love to see it as a part of health and science, the connection between health and science in elementary and high schools so that it becomes normal to know about clinical trials and what they mean. What it means to actually go to Walgreens, go to the pharmacy section and realize everything sitting on this shelf went through a clinical trial. And it's the difference between the Aleve and the Tylenol. Which one works for you? Who knows? But they've both been through a trial. And now it's easy for you to just go up on that shelf and purchase it, take it, and relieve your pain. That's the connection. That is the simplistic connection that we need to be making to all people about clinical trials. That they've been... They've been benefiting from clinical trials for a very long time. So it's interesting that you had these conversations. There seemed to be a great amount of awareness. There seemed to be a desire to be asked or to be told, how can I participate? Do you have suggestions? You know, if you were to sit in front of CROs or sponsors right now who are struggling with patient recruitment for some of their trials, how would you tell them they could get this conversation started with communities? I think that it's convenient uh, at, at times to go through our hospitals, uh, sometimes even uh, our Black churches. When I, I, I hesitate to say that those are not the strategies to get to the person that's you know, living in the community, doing their thing every day. It's time to really think about how every individual family understands clinical trials, particularly because of COVID, particularly in, in, in regards to COVID. So does that mean um, written communication? 
a flyer, a letter, some a door hanger, whatever it would take, right? For right. people to understand that uh, sponsors, pharma is interested, cares, wants to know what you think uh, using, you know, city council people who have monthly meetings within their own wards, send a representative to speak to that group. It's ways to get down to the grassroots levels. Sure, you can do that at churches as well. Um, it's a little antiquated. I mean, it has a very political, political strategy to it uh, that may not be taken as well, but to give, your, to give each one of those SROs or sponsors the opportunity to hear back, hear what people have to say and, and clear up some of these misconceptions about mistrust or fear or uh, we're not gonna, we're not, we don't wanna participate, we don't wanna be a guinea pig. Uh, I think it's not going to be as uncomfortable as I think people are perceiving it to be. And do you think it's not as uncomfortable as they perceive it because they might get the reaction that you saw, which was even when uncomfortable conversations came up around Tuskegee or Henrietta Lacks, you had people in the audience saying, but let's remember some of the good that came out of it. Do you think that that, that would be a common occurrence if more of these conversations were had in broader settings? Definitely. And I think what would emerge out of those conversations is that it, it would be learning that would happen for uh, the minority of people who, who still feel that the mistrust issue is the reason why they can't move forward. Um, but there would be a lot more learning on the other side where they would realize that folks in communities understand we won't ever get the information about Blacks and other people of color if they don't participate in clinical trials. That's the flip side of what you're not hearing. That's what we understand at the neighborhood level. We've not been asked. Right. And that's what they want to express. We haven't been asked so we're not representative in these trials. It's not that we're sitting around like, oh my God, I don't, don't put me in a trial. Th that's not the percentage of people and how they feel. Of course, you're gonna get a lot of folks uh, who are going to say, I don't wanna be a guinea pig. That's across race. That is across race. And I can attest to that myself as a, you know, being a, uh, someone who was largely involved with the All of Us program and just, you know, as an ambassador in the lobby of the hospitals, asking people to participate in that program and go, oh, I don't want to be a guinea pig. That was all colors. Right. What I found at our event and subsequent studies was the reason why we haven't been asked, we want to know why we can't be involved in trials. We want to know why. What's the hangup? Why when every time there is a trial, there's only, they're homogeneous? 
What is that all about? And so it is a matter of if we can all sit down and talk about it, then we can talk about strategies for you to get the information to me. And then I can tell you yes or no. But these constant assumptions and then barriers put up around narratives that aren't necessarily 100% correct is dangerous. And we're seeing it play out. We're seeing it play out with COVID. As, uh, as I like to talk about, last year, when it was announced that, you know, there were so many, uh, so many Blacks and people of color who were dying from COVID. We were watching that on national news. A week later, what we saw, we saw state capitals being overtaken with people with guns, screaming and hollering at the police about how, I wanna go back to work. I wanna go back to, I want, I want my state open again. You have to imagine what that feels like as a person of color or African-American to watch that and go, what does this mean? We've got people dying from COVID. And then we've got white people who think that that doesn't matter and say, we need to open up. This isn't, this isn't affecting me. And so fast forward a year later, when the vaccine comes out, no outreach, no outreach about accruals for trials, about antibodies, nothing. No outreach. A lot of town hall discussions, but no strategy. No strategy to get Blacks in trials. And then when it comes out, I know we got 10%. No, we got 13%. We got 7,000 people to to get involved, Black people to get involved in this study. Out of how many? It was like they, they felt like they needed to be cheered about that. But instead, the backlash came back and people were going, nah, I don't think I want to take that vaccine. Nobody Black was in the trial. How, do, how should I feel about this? Right? You have to continue to look at this, this history of how we approach things in, in, in our country. It's like, oh, let's just go with the, 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 the path of least resistance. And then it comes back to bite us in the butt and we're like, well, how do we miss the mark? We missed the mark because we had groupthink around the whole concept of how we were gonna fast track this, this vaccine. And they are still doing trials. And in a, a lot of the social media that I'm involved in, I don't see very many of uh, Black people telling me, oh, I'm in, I'm in the trial. But I, I do see a lot of that on Twitter with, oh, my daughter's in the trial and oh, my, my, my son is in the trial. I'm like, what trial? How did you find out about a trial? Again, it's, it's the communication around it. Mm-hmm. I think what I'm hearing is there's a real lack of creativity on outreach and, and outreach strategy into various communities. Indeed. And when I think of recruitment, and I, I think of recruitment into trials 
it is usually they've put up a website that if you're lucky, if you've done a lot of searching, you might stumble upon it. Right. Or you might hear about it through some random outreach from your health system because they've been looking through people's uh, records and they found that, you know, you might qualify. But there doesn't seem to be that general advertising or marketing or really broadband outreach that it's going to take to truly bring other communities into trials. Is that, is that your understanding as well? Uh, totally. It's like, it's a leadership decision. It's definitely a leadership position. I often say to myself, if, you know, the president said all adults are going to have this vaccine by May 1st. And now you see how everybody is scrambling to make that happen. I have seen more uh, posters and billboards, any type of communication strategy. I cannot walk in my own neighborhood, which is predominantly African-American, without seeing free COVID testing. Come to this site for the vaccination. Now it's on Facebook. Everybody is posting it. This is where you can get Pfizer. This is where you can get Moderna. That didn't happen until he said all adults are going to have this vaccine by May 1st. Isn't that amazing? And I just went, well, wouldn't that be something if the powers that be who want us to be involved in clinical trials would do the same? would just set an agenda and a deadline, you know, and say, we, we want to create a strategy around information around clinical trials. Because that's what it re really takes. I mean, I don't think I'm being naive or romantic about the concept. I think that it just, it's a matter of, do we want to do this? What does that mean when we start to say we want to enroll more Blacks and more people of color into clinical trials? What does that really mean for us? What does it mean for our sites and our clinical investigators and all of our staff? What does this mean? Are they coming to us? Are we coming to them? What does that mean? So one of the things that we've seen happen in the last year is more and more clinical trials are now being run on a hybrid or decentralized basis. So literally the clinical trials are coming to the patients instead of vice versa. Do you think that that helps? And if so, how would it help to enhance diversity within the trials? Oh my goodness. Listen, <laughs> Nicole, I, I, you know, I, I often have had this conversation simply by saying, if we can, if, if you can get someone to participate in a clinical trial in their home, kudos, right? But if you can, if you can help some of these community-based health clinics, and some of these underfunded safety net hospitals to be sites for clinical trials. 
That to me makes so much common sense. I know it's, I know it's a market and I know it's competitive, uh, but just imagine for a moment if a clinical trial site for diabetes was in a safety net hospital in a Latino community where the staff has, has been retrained, the physicians there have been retrained to actually monitor and conduct clinical trials. Right there at a hospital that that population of people trust, are being seen as patients. It, to me, that's just a no brainer. I don't see why it can't happen. I can't see why if every major city had about on average five to seven safety net hospitals, every state has um, economic development incentive money to which they could use to renovate and upgrade so many of these safety net hospitals the integrity of the trial would still be intact because we could use that state money to upgrade these hospitals and make sure that they had exactly what the protocols would be that would be necessary to create trial sites. So imagine a, you know, a, a safety net hospital that has a floor that's just dedicated to a clinical trial. And they have upgraded all of the, the necessary improvements for that, for that hospital. Should something go awry when treatments are being given to trial participants? If it's just a matter of you know, getting your eyes checked or any other uh, contraindication that could happen while you're on a trial, the neighborhood uh, health clinic could service you. I just think if we thought a little bit outside of the box, these brick and mortar uh, buildings exist and they're underfunded, understaffed. Imagine the job creation that could happen when both sides, both the state and pharmaceuticals put a little skin in the game to make these trials, uh, these trial sites uh, get developed and happen. I know it's possible. Have you seen an example of what you think the future is. So I, I love your passion for these ideas. It sounds like you've really thought through a lot of opportunities. Have you seen anybody actually put it in practice so far? Not in Chicago, not in Chicago. I, I, I have had conversations with uh, past colleagues that are now developers to say, can we do this? I mean, is this possible? And they're like, of course it's possible. It's possible to use tax increment financing uh, district incentive funds to rehab uh, a neighborhood hospital when we have a partner like a pharmaceutical company. That would pass through the state legislature so quick it'll make everybody's head spin. It would get voted on so quickly. And here's the other cool part about it. Because it's state, it's state money, public hearings have to happen. What happens at a public hearing? You inform 
the public of how you want to use the money in their neighborhood. What a wonderful opportunity to do outreach around clinical trials. So I haven't seen it, but I've talked with several professionals about the possibility. So it, it's just a matter of who wants to step forward and say, let's do this. So if you had an open platform to talk to all the different constituents who make up the clinical trial industry, what are the three pieces of advice you would give to others on how to improve clinical trials? Before even coming to the table with those uh, three things, we need to find out, do you want to come? The first step is to listen. The second step is to share uh, so that other people can learn. So there's that bi-directional approach I keep talking about, right? You listen to me, you hear what I have to say, I listen to you, but you have to tell it to me in easy to understand language, right? And then together we come up with a strategy where it's going to work for everybody and it's going to make everybody comfortable. Well, Kimberly, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And of course, thank you for being such a great advocate for patients and for clinical trials and for improvements on the health journey overall. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Trial Talks. To delve deeper into the insights and information you heard today, visit us at trialtalks.com. 